Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Stephen, I call you Stevie. Do you mind me calling you Stevie on these podcasts? Would you rather not? Would you rather I call you Stephen? It's being recorded. Yes, it is. And just, uh, do I call you, would you like me to call you Maestro or would you like me to call you Stephen? I think you should call me what you normally call me. Stevie, okay, and good. I'd be said with a great deal of reluctance. Worry. I know, I can sense. <laughs> um, I'm married to you and you're a conductor. And of course, we get all the old jokes of, oh, what bus route is he on and all that. Those have faded away because we now don't have conductors on buses. So those have slightly faded away. But actually, behind that is something, because a conductor is somebody who a lot of people look at in front of an orchestra and wonder, what is it a conductor does? Because it seems that he's standing in front of a lot of highly skilled musicians. And some people have said, couldn't they all play it on their own anyway? So can you tell me, when did they... First of all, were there always conductors? And then secondly, I want to go into what exactly it is that a conductor does and why he's so necessary. So could we start off with, were there always conductors? Conducting really didn't emerge until the 17th century, and they wouldn't have conducted in a way that we recognise. Because you have to remember that if you have one or two or three players, then they can do without anyone else getting in the way. But as ensembles you know, groups of players or groups of singers got larger and larger, it became more of a problem to keep everything together. Secondly, there was hardly ever any rehearsal. When you think about music in the past without publishing, without any kind of repeat performances, everything was new. So the ink was wet, for example, when Bach wrote a cantata for every week. So... This went on and in, in, into Mozart's day and Haydn's day. Did Mozart conduct his own music? It, it's said that he directed some performances of operas. And then it is also said that Beethoven directed some performances of his symphonies. But again, this is not going to be conducting as we now know it. It would have been keeping everybody together. In Thomas Beecham's famous words, uh, you know, when asked what he did, he simply said, well, I, I start everything off, and then if we end together, it's a great success. <laughs> um, but somebody indicating how the music should go became more important as ensembles grew bigger and bigger. So, for example, Handel's Messiah, when it was done with hundreds of performers, he would have been at a keyboard. There probably were two keyboard players, and he would have been leading the ensembles. And everything, hopefully, stayed together. 
Steve, is there a section of the Messiah that you can really hear that scale? Well, Worthy is the Lamb, towards the end of the Messiah, is a number where you can really hear all guns blazing, brass, mm. trumpets, bells and whistles included. <laughs> What is the most important part of a conductor's job? Is it the beat? Is it the tempo? You're setting the tempo rather than just waving along with it. Isn't that so? Because otherwise it just goes off the edge of a cliff. By tempo, you mean the speed of the music? Yes, obviously, maestro. That's obviously the very words I meant to use. <laughs> it's a word we use in the business that actually speaks of quite a lot. But fundamentally, yes. How fast is this going to go? Now, with the growth of the metronome, which, yeah. which is one of these things... Mr Barlow's picked up a small, frightening-looking little black box and has switched it on. And that is... That's a metronome mark at 152 beats a minute. Can you do it at different speed? Yes, of course. And do it? So this is... Well, I'll give you something they use quite a lot in techno music. 120, which is quite a popular pulse for nightclub music. As you well know. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> from my vast experience. So, yes, the speed at which music should be played mm. is important. Is that marked? Does the composer mark that? Well, originally, no. They didn't even say how fast it should go. Uh, they might put a marking up in, in, in... We use Italian markings. They might write Allegro. Or they might write slow, which would be adagio, fast, or, or quick, which is slightly different. Sometimes they didn't mark anything at all. And sometimes they, would, in, they might write moderately. It is of no use whatsoever. I've got books up on the shelves, particularly one, which is an analysis of all Mozart's music against all the words that he used to describe how fast a piece of music should go. So when he would write andante, which means at walking pace, it's debatable just how fast the real speed should be. Hence, you have a lot of different interpretations. Some, well, a lot of the music that most orchestras play is very well known to them, even if it's not well known to the public, they may have played it many, many times before under many different conductors, and they might have formed their own opinion of what they like. You have to bear in mind that what you may have in front of you is an orchestra of 80 musicians, and that is 80 different opinions, and that's going to get nowhere. So the whole point is for that one moment at which a conductor stands up to conduct a Bruckner symphony or a Beethoven symphony. It is the conductor who has the power invested in him by the musicians to show them how they will be playing this today. That's quite a modern way of thinking about it, and it's much more sensitive than it used to be. Is it important for a conductor to have played or be able to play or sing music? Are there conductors who aren't instrumentalists or singers? Because it seems to me that... 
sometimes some of the the fingering on very fast violin pieces, for instance, seems so fast that if you took it at a tremendous speed, wouldn't it be terribly, terribly hard to do that? Or singing, if it goes too slow to be able to retain that breath. If they're not singers, they might not know how hard it is to sustain a note or whatever. You cannot become a great conductor unless you know how all the instruments work as a very basic minimum. So you have to know how all the instruments work. Now, I would say that it would be extremely rare to find any great conductor who was not a pretty good performer Mm. to a very high degree on one instrument, maybe two, and maybe is also a composer. One of the the great famous names, Herbert von Karajan, was he, what did he play? You know, I've forgotten that if I ever knew it. I think he was a string player, but I could be wrong. Because you see, Daniel Barenboim, who's sublime as both a conductor, is a world-class pianist well, as well. Well, he, he made his international career first as, as, a, pianist. as a concert pianist yeah. of the highest possible achievement. He played... All of Beethoven's piano sonatas, didn't he? He did, and and he still, well, in recent years, he's he's still been playing cycles of the Beethoven sonatas. It's extraordinary, and his rendition of this first sonata of Beethoven's is just exquisite. Really demonstrating his classical balance, color, the lightness of touch, and the care. Stevie, if the conductor isn't up to scratch, but the audience is there, and the, they might have had a couple of run-throughs, a few rehearsals, but the, the orchestra can tell the person isn't really up to scratch. Orchestras Who can takes, tell straight away. Okay, they can tell. Okay, now they're going to perform, and they've got Mr. or Mrs. Duff doing the show. Who do they look to to lead them through this? To be perfectly clear, you cannot conduct an orchestra well, and an orchestra cannot play really as well as they should or can, unless the conductor has a very good relationship with the leader of the orchestra. And who's the leader? The concert master, it's called in Europe and America. The leader of the orchestra is the principal first violin. And where does he sit? Very close to the conductor? Absolutely. Yeah. Right at the front of, of the violins, in a position where all of the string section can can see see what he's doing. So that relationship is absolutely critical. Leaders of orchestras are very prominent and very special musicians. They they are also soloists of a very high calibre. So when there's a solo part in... In the, in the piece, they yes. will usually take that. And sometimes they will also play concertos with the orchestra. Yeah. So an orchestra looks to them for leadership and also diplomacy. So in many, many ways, the relationship between the conductor and the leader 
is absolutely critical. I've noticed whenever the conductor comes on stage, the first person he shakes hand with, well, the only person really, is he greets the leader who stands up. The That's... whole orchestra will stand up when the conductor comes on out of respect. And then he, the conductor goes straight over and shakes the hand of the leader. You shake hands with the leader, which is a formal way of recognising the entire orchestra. Mm. The leader represents the orchestra. And of the orchestral players, you've always talked to me about the brass section, who seem to have a kind of different buoyancy. Oh, they, oh buoyancy? What are, well, I don't what are know, you I getting at? I don't know. I wanted to choose a, <laughs> an attractive word so they don't come and blam me on the head with a tuba later. But what I'm trying to say is they always have a quite sort of brash and different feeling the brass section, they don't seem so biddable. Well, I don't think let's every say brass oboe. player would be gratified to no, hear you, you know describe what, you know what that I mean. What I'm trying to say is, do they have the same respect for the leader who's always a violinist? Uh, don't wag your finger at me <laughs> just because you think I've dissed a few brass players. No, well, well no, no. I love moving, brass. I would have played a trumpet if I could. Moving on. Look, every individual in an orchestra has a very personal way of seeing the world and and the way they work. And so out of an, an orchestra which is made up of a large number of string players... Much the largest of the string players. Yes, because they, they How provide... How many? Can you just give me a little tiny thumbnail Well, no, sketch? it depends. In a chamber okay, a big, orchestra, you big... might have 10 violins split into four violas, four cellos, two basses in a modest chamber orchestra with two flutes and two oboes and two clarinets and two bassoons and two trumpets or horns. But a large orchestra, I mean, for Elektra at Strauss's opera, he says he wants 117 players. <gasps> and you can't get those into many opera pits. No. You do really get to hear the scale of it all when he throws everything at it in the very famous uh, aria of Elektra's Schweig und Tanze. So, so the orchestra is divided into, first of all, individuals who must come together in their own section because every instrument is played a different way and produces its sound a different way. Then you have the woodwind, which nowadays is not strictly all wood because flutes used to be made out of wood, but they are no longer. They're made out of metals. Some people still play on a wooden flute. Sorry, digression there. Well, does it um, sound different? Yes, it does, actually. It, it does. Every instrument sounds different. There is no, no, no instrument sounds exactly the same as any other. Uh, and and just, then uh, the player makes a can, difference. Can I dodge sideways as well? Uh, and so for the great Stradivarius or Amati violins, is there uh, audibly, to somebody, a nitwit like me, would I hear a more beautiful sound? Yes, I think I can tell what a what a piano is when I hear a recital without knowing can what you? a piano. Yes, I think I can. You can guarantee that it, string players would be able to identify a Stradivarius or an Amati. But then after the woodwind, there are the brass instruments, trumpets, horns, trombones. And they are divided into two groups because the trumpets and trombones are seen as an inner group. And the horns, there can easily be as many as eight in the biggest orchestras, for the biggest pieces, they, they even sit separately. The horns sit separately from the trumpets and trombones either side. And then you have the percussion section and the timps, the drums at the back. 
And percussion in instruments are what? Well, percussion is anything that is struck. Percutio, as James Blades, great innovator in percussion, said, I strike. So all percussion instruments are basically struck. So that would go Rather from cymbals to, or blown. to triangles to xylophones. Are these percussion? Yes, they're all percussion. Mm. They play different instruments too, don't they, percussionists? Yes, what they, absolutely. Because so, I've seen them, when they've quietened their cymbals, they've gone, Bwah, and it's gone out like that, and they've quietened them. Then you see them putting them down like mice so they don't go clang, and picking up another thing which might be... And, yeah. and also those bells, are those bells? Huge tubular bells. Yes, yes. Oh, that's percussion? Yeah, you, as a percussionist, I was a percussionist and yeah. a timpanist when I was much younger. You really do enjoy learning all the different instruments. Side drummers tend to be specialists, mm. but everybody I knew as a percussionist had learnt the side drum. But that's a much more technically demanding instrument. Actually, I could say the same for the xylophone, because the xylophone is, a, is like- also a complicated... Well, it, it, it can be in its largest form. You sometimes use four sticks. Um, that's two in each that's hand. That's two in it? each hand, yeah. in between the fingers. Yeah playing separate notes. I mean, I love playing the xylophone and the marimba, which is a deeper form of that instrument. Where can one hear a marimba in classical music? Well, you can hear it in a very contemporary piece by the wonderful American composer Steve Reich. It's called Sextet, and it shows the deeper, more resonant and mellow sound of the marimba as uh, opposed to the xylophone. Those sorts of instruments are sometimes a bit specialist, but in the main, you would play everything and you, you wouldn't believe how many percussion instruments are sometimes called for. In the Rite of Spring, there's a rape guero, which is a thing you, like a washboard. But a rasping. Yes. Yeah. And these more uncommon instruments can really help to create a wide range of moods. Obviously, this is Joanna here. Listen, the thing is, speaking to you at home, is that my husband and I are rapidly running out of things to say to each other. We've been silent for the last two days. We've run out. So what we want you to do is to write into us with any questions or comments or problems or anything you've got about music, which I can then funnel through to the maestro. So won't you email us on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we will deal with every problem and query. And, you know, compliments very gladly received. Thank you so much. Now, look, I'm just going to want to do this because this is where most of us see a conductor. Either we're going to a concert or we're going to an opera. And first of all, there's a sort of hush. The orchestra tunes up, then there's a hush, and then we know it's going to start. And then on comes 
the conductor. Now, if it's a concert, he usually walks from the side into the center of the stage. And as soon as you see him, you start clapping. In an opera, of course, he's usually in the orchestra pit, which is semi-submerged under the stage, and sometimes is only partially visible to parts of the audience. But the second the door opens at the back of the pit and a shaft of light, I remember this seeing you at Covent Garden coming in to do Turandot, the little door opened and a shaft of light kind of shot out at the back. You came in behind the brass, I think. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And then walking, walking, walking. But, of course, Covent Garden is such a... The Royal Opera House is so huge that people could see you and the courtesy is to stop the round of applause immediately and the roar of applause. And then dibby, 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 coming through the musicians, occasionally shaking hands with one, I've noticed that. And then you get up onto the podium, which is, of course, submerged, and you look up at the house... And the orchestra's all standing and you all look out to the front and you take a bow and that's for the whole orchestra, isn't it? Yeah. Then you turn round and the house lights are going down Mm -hmm. and you're going to begin the opera. Now, there's a lot going on in the opera. The curtain may have to go up, there might be an overture or it might just start like Turandot with that fantastically menacing start. No overture, just straight into those five powerful chords. Ba, 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 ba. Who tells you, how do you know that backstage all the singers are ready and all the, you know, the crew are ready? Is there a light or is there somebody waving at you? No, the, you, the, there's a complete schedule down to a T. Every little bit. So you know this in the theatre. The five is called, which is actually ten minutes yeah. to curtain up. Five, but the five is five minutes, they say. But it's that gets it, you to the it, edge. It's ten minutes. Yeah, no, no and, and then after those five minutes, it's beginners. Yeah. So at at the beginners stage, the conductor would be waiting and expecting. A tap on the door. This is the way it worked at Covent Garden, like clockwork. How did it work at Covent Garden? The senior stage manager, yeah. wonderful Stella Chitty, yeah. legendary stage manager, would knock on the door very gently. There were two doors, actually. There was an outer door and an inner door. Uh. And she would knock very gently on the outer door, first of all, yeah. and then come and knock on the inner door. And just in case you hadn't heard, she would put her hand around the door first of all so that if you hadn't heard her at least you might see her coming into the room this is also that you know if you were meditating or whatever you might be doing you would know that stella was there you might have been canoodling with a lovely um in my case (laughs) not really at that time in my life Because you were married to me. I was. Okay. Um, so so, around, yes, so Stella comes to collect. Yeah. She came to collect conductors. And then she would lead in front of you very slowly because, you know, some conductors are very ancient. We go on until we can't anymore. Mm. She would lead with one arm stretched behind because across the dark stage, even though there were lights and everything had been prepared just in case you lost your footing or whatever. Then she would take you down the stairs, the circular stairs, down to the pit, where there would be two orchestral managers, the pit manager and an assistant orchestral manager. 
and there would be a white chalk mark on the floor about a yard back from the door. And at exactly the right moment, a radio message comes down from stage manager to say, conductor, go. And then he would, with a big smile, the orchestral manager, pull open the door, and there you are on your white cross, and there is the light, and there is the passageway. And then he would say, toy toy, maestro. And what does that mean? Oh, it means good luck. And what, what does it mean, toy toy, or toy toy well, toy it's, sometimes? It, it's um, supposed to be an imitation of a spit. Oh, you spat, spat just good luck. T- well, it was t- like it, that. It was, t- 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 it's yeah. really toy toy toy. Yeah. But the point is that it was a very well oiled schedule of exactitude. And then you would get to the front, you would shake the leader's hand always. And at the very end of a performance, too, you would shake the leader's hand. But sometimes, you don't need any other indication. You can start when you like. Somebody's put your score out in front of you. Yes, although there have been some disasters. <laughs> Mark Elder famously came into a pit to conduct Tosca and liked Sir Charles Macarius, the famous conductor, liked to take his bow and tell the orchestra to sit down with one arm. And then about two seconds later, he'd bring the downbeat down. So everybody had to be on their toes. Well, Mark did this, and it wasn't until he'd started off Tosca with those huge brass chords, and he looked down and he saw there was no score on the story. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? So, so, bless his heart, so the story goes, he thrust out a hand to the leader's desk, music stand, Edmund Reed, I think, was leading, and grabbed his music. <laughs> and apparently, either Edmund or his desk partner thought, for some reason, maybe he's just knocked the stand and held on to the music. So there was a tug of war with Mark trying to get the the, the, the violin music, which he finally got and got onto the stand. And finally, someone realised that he didn't have his score. Could you get through it with just a violin? Because, of course, all the music parts are very different. You're the only one who's got all the music in front of you on the full score. Everybody else has just got their own parts. Yes, yes you, you could. You know, if you, you know the opera really well, you could, you could manage for a while. Not, uh, not so long, I think. When you knew that you were going to be a conductor along with being a composer and playing the piano and things, when you knew you were going to conduct, did you have to learn how to do it? Is there a sort of conducting method that you must take on board? Yes, there are fundamentals. Let's put it this way. When you go to a conservatoire or a college or you go to a particular highly reputed conductor who teaches, you do have to learn what's called the semaphore. So put in very simple terms... The first beat of a bar will be, if you point your index finger up to the sky, the first beat will be bringing your index finger down to right angles and your index finger pointing forward. So you simply come straight down, and that is one. And if the the bar is in four beats, then two would be directly left. You made me think about it. <gasps> I cannot think why. Just to... Directly to your left. left. Across your Two body. Two is a weak beat, so it's okay to cross your body. Dumb. Uh, so two would be yeah. to your left, assuming you're right-handed. Three is directly across your body in one straight line, 
landing up, pointing to your right. Yeah. Then the fourth beat is back up to the position that you started in, pointing up to the sky. So you've made so a sort of sail down, shape, kind of triangle. Down, left, well, yes. right, up, down, left, right, up. Now, there are different patterns for each time signature. By that, I mean whether it's in four beats in a bar or two beats in a bar or three. And three is down, right, up, down, right, up. Mm. So the whole aim of this is so that everybody in the orchestra knows exactly what beat you're on. You've got now, to be clear, haven't you? When you're, when you're in an opera pit, you have players sitting absolutely stretching out all the way back to the pit. So it needs to be clear, left and right and up. Then you have to learn about the upbeat, which is how to begin a piece. Oh. And the upbeat is one of the most important things anybody can ever learn in conducting. Because if you learn how to give an upbeat that suggests not only when you want the beat to start, but how you want the first beat to sound, you are well on the way to understanding how to begin as a conductor. Show me, and then I can describe it. An upbeat, you would start with your hands down at waist level, mm. and then you would simply go up and down. And you had your right that hand, has, though, as though you were holding what we like to, in the business, call sticks. But you mean the baton. And yeah. the left one, you always have your hand quite sort of fanned open. And all kinds well, of swooning yeah, women yeah, have said to me afterwards, oh, he's got things. such lovely hands. I love the way he uses his don't hands. An, don't analyse. No, you know they say analyze. that. Or oh, it it's... just flutters his hands about. You must love that. OK, OK, so, but look, so we couldn't really show that very clearly. But the upbeat is all... And by your but body, it has to be on the speed language. of the music. Oh, okay, okay. So if it's very, if it's very, and sometimes if it's, it's uh, very, bah. yes. It, so up and down in one in one movement. Yeah. The coming down is the beat, but you have to have a preparation for the coming down that shows exactly where it's to start, what the speed is, and what the quality of the sound is. So you have to be thinking of how you want the music to be. And the best way to do that is with an upbeat. Your upbeat to start music is to breathe in as you do it. <laughs> so uh, conducting is not standing and waving and having a good time. Because people often say, It emoting. is not about you, And I've emoting. also noticed you don't do lots of faces because you kind of semi-detest that because you're not very sort of showy-offy like that. But lots of people love to show off a bit, don't they? And to feel the pain. I've noticed you very seldom do feeling the pain of the music. No, don't do that face. You can see. <laughs> Listeners, I, you, he, he I really do that. not want to see myself. I do not want to see a conductor emoting the, all the emotions of the music as if the players did not understand what it was about in the first place. No. The players know. You, you can, though, show intensity and earnestness and purpose. Mm. It's important to remember, too, that orchestras sit on the concert platform for years and years and years. And sometimes they play the same music over and over and over and over again. So, of course, they're looking for genuine feeling and commitment to the music and belief in the music and an understanding of how emotional it is. But I don't want to see someone sweating and emoting as if they're the only person in the hall that really understands how how touching it is, or how powerful <laughs> it is. Well, well, so 
I wonder if I think that well, it's it's told me a lot more about conducting than I knew. <laughs> funnily enough, it has. It truly has, and it's, it's a gargantuan task because you're like the full score in front of you. That pretty much says it all. Everybody's doing their bit to fit in and to contribute, and you are the one in charge of it. You're driving the ship. Yeah. Thank you, Maestro. Now let's go out with the very start of Daphnis and Chloe. It's a wonderful ballet by Maurice Ravel, and it's the story of two lovers on the Greek island of Lesbos. And there's just such a great scale to it. It's magnificent and it's colossal. It's, it's almost widescreen. That was Joanna and the maestro talking about conducting. See you next time. In this episode, you've heard the following music. Handel's Messiah, Part 3, Worthy as the Lamb, performed by Tenebrae with the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Sir Colin Davis. And the record label was London Symphony Orchestra Limited. Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 1 in F minor, Opus 2, First Movement performed by Daniel Barenboim, and the record label was Parlophone Records Limited. Strauss's Elektra, number 28, Elektra, Schweig und Tanze, performed by Staatskapelle Berlin and conducted by Daniel Barenboim, and the record label was Teldic Classics International. Steve Reich's Sextet, Fifth Movement, performed by Nexus and Steve Reich Musicians, published by Hendon Music Limited, and the record label was None Such Records, manufactured and marketed by Rhino Entertainment. Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, K015, Part 1, Procession of the Sage, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Sir Simon Rattle, published by Hawks and Son Limited, and the record label was London Symphony Orchestra Limited. Puccini's Turandot, Act 1, Popoli de Pechino, performed by Sabin Markov, Nikolai Gyorov, John Aldis Choir, Luciano Pavarotti, the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and conducted by Zubin Mehta, published by Casa Ricordi and G Ricordi and Co. Limited, and the record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Maurice Ravel's Daphne and Chloe, Introduction at Dance Religieuse, performed by London Symphony Chorus with London Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Valery Gergiev. And the record label was London Symphony Orchestra Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Puccini's Turandot, Act 3, Scene 2, Diecimila anni al nostro imperatore, performed by Malaga Philharmonic Orchestra, Giovanna Casola and Alexander Rabari, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate, K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 61, Third Movement, performed by Slovak Philharmonic Orchestra, Takako Nishizaki and Kenneth Jean, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.